Amen. Good morning, church. Hebrews 10, 26 is where we'll be. My name's Russ. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Um, it's my joy and delight to be able to share God's word with you. It's overdue that I'm with my people here at St. John um, and uh, loving with this congregation, um, but also aware that we'll be streaming out to uh, four other of our five other congregations today. Our, our preaching is very complicated, um, but it's going to four other congregations today, and so they're getting to experience two-dimensional rust, which is what you usually get to experience, um, but just so that you know, and as your eyes now uh, reveal to you, two-dimensional rust is way more impressive than three-dimensional rust, and so actually having flat rust on the screen is, is something of a, of a bonus. Um, people tend to find me fairly disappointing in person, um, as do I. All right, we're continuing in our verse-by-verse study of the epistle to the Hebrews. Here's a brief reminder. This this epistle actually took the form of a sermon, right? And so it was a sermon that was preached and written down and then distributed amongst the Jewish diaspora who are starting to come under some kind of persecution for their faith. They had grown up in Judaism. They were worshippers of Yahweh, had followed the law, and then come to believe that Jesus or Yeshua was the Messiah, the promised one of God, and so they weren't leaving Judaism to become Christians. They were seeing the ultimate fulfillment of their Jewish faith come in the Messiah that had been promised to them for millennia. They just believed that Jesus was the right one. And now they were waiting, right? Now remember, they're a diaspora, so they're suffering. They're under Roman rule. They're separated from Jerusalem, um, and they're waiting for Christ to bring his eternal rule and reign, which he had promised. And they're looking to the skies, wondering when the end of the ages will be, and he's taking a while. And so they're starting to suffer. They're starting to feel persecution. And so whoever it is who first preached the sermon preaches this as a way to keep them going, as a way to say, hold on. You'll make it to the end. Don't go back. Don't go back to a previous way of thinking. Don't think you've got it wrong on Jesus. Don't go back to your former way of life. Now, we don't actually even know who preached this first sermon or who wrote it down. There are entire books devoted to its authorship, right? Now, I know some experts, um, in fact, there was a book released last week um, uh, trying to prove Pauline authorship, right, that Paul actually wrote this. Maybe there's a lot of evidence that says he might have, that he wrote this in Aramaic, and then then Luke translates it, and that's why the language feels a bit different. That's why it's anonymous, and and the sentence structure feels a bit uh, different. Some say it's Apollos. Uh, Some say maybe it's Barnabas. Some say it's Luke. Some say it's Prisca or Priscilla. There's an entire book devoted um, to Priscilla's authorship of this. Here's the thing. As the preaching team, and they're smarter than me, have looked at this, we go like, we don't really know who wrote this, who first preached this, who wrote this down. We do know why they wrote it, why they preached it. And that was to exhort the church to keep going. It was written to exhort these Jewish believers so that they would persevere in their firmly held conviction that Jesus of Nazareth was who he claimed to be, the sent son of God, the Messiah of Israel, the savior of the world. And so therefore, to believe anything different about him would be to go back to something and to, be, to go back to something that was inferior to Jesus because the supremacy of Christ has been the singular topic of the first 10 chapters of Hebrews, right? He's saying Christ is supreme over all the things that you have known, all the things that you have believed, all the things that you would go to in order to feel a right standing um, before God the Father, right? So everything that you're going to turn to to go, am I accepted and loved by God? Can I stand before Him in any way? Any other thing that you're tempted to go to for that feeling of rightness, of acceptance, of love, all of those are going to be inferior to Jesus Christ. And so don't go back. They were like, what about deep spirituality? What about the angelic beings? He was like, no, Jesus is better than them, right? 
Hebrews 1. Well, what about Moses? I mean, Moses led us out of the wilderness. No, Jesus is better than Moses. What about the law that Moses gave us? No, better. What about the tabernacle, right, in which God met? No, Jesus is better than that. What about the temple on the temple? No, Jesus is better. What about the sacrifices that were offered from the temple? No, Jesus is better. And so therefore, keep going. Now listen, we haven't grown up with a lot of that iconography, right? We haven't grown up with a lot of that religious activity. And so it feels a little abstract to us, but the writer is saying to them and to us that the only way, listen, that followers of Christ um, can be secure in their right standing with God, the only way is through the better person and work of Jesus Christ. Nothing and no one else can secure us in right standing with God. There's no depth of spirituality, though I want you to go spiritually deep. There's no measure of religious adherence, so the text is gonna call you to be obedient. There's no diligence in knowledge of religious wisdom, though I want you to know the scriptures with your whole heart. Nothing comes close to Jesus, nothing. You have to, if you're gonna experience joy and freedom and liberty and right standing with God, you have to base your righteousness not in yourself, not in some kind of religious adherence, but in Jesus Christ. And in Him, you can find mercy and grace and wisdom and fulfillment of all those other pursuits. He's not saying all of those other pursuits are bad. He's saying they're inferior to Christ. So get them in the right order. Listen, all of those exhortations, though, because it's a good sermon, are linked to warnings. And so if you read the first 10 chapters of Hebrews up until this point, it'll be exhort, 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 Jesus is better, warning, don't go back. Exhort, 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 Jesus is better, warning, don't go back. Exhort, 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 Jesus is better, warning, don't go back. And here we get to the fourth and, praise God, final warning um, of this epistle, and it's a doozy. Right, And it comes right off the back of the most practical exhortation that we've had so far. So if you guys were here last week, um, that makes you here two weeks in a row. Super saints, well done. Um, if you were here last week, you heard this exhortation, right? It's in three parts. Draw near to Christ. Why? You've got a purified conscience and you've been washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. So don't stand off in guilt, right? Don't be half in to this religious community. Draw near to Christ and to, and to his people. Draw near. What, what else did he say? Hold fast to your confession of hope without wavering. Why? Because he who calls you is faithful. So because of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, you hold fast as best you can. You don't start to waver and get tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine or temptation or cultural nuance or trend. You hold fast and you say, no, no, Jesus is my hope and nothing can shake you free of that. And, and then what else did he say? He said, let us consider how to stir up one another towards love and good deeds. What is he saying? You aren't just saved on your own. You're saved in a community of people. Don't just think about your own self think about the others around you. And no matter how badly, listen to me, this community or others like it injures you, disappoints you, fails you, they will do all of those things. Don't drift away from Christian community. Stay in a place where you can stir one another up towards love and good deeds because as you need to stir others, they need to stir you and a Christian in isolation is never gonna get stirred up. And what you'll feel is a hardening of your heart and a drifting away, right? So that's the exhortation. Draw near, hold fast, stir up. Right off the back of that comes the warning. 
And so we must view the warning in light of the exhortation. What the warning is saying is, but some people won't do that. They won't draw near. They won't believe that grace is sufficient for them to waltz right into the heavenly courts, sure of acceptance and mercy. They won't, they won't hold fast. They'll, they'll start to question the ancient truths and they'll get pushed to and fro by culture's whims and new ideas, right? And they won't stir up. They'll grow bitter and hard-hearted against Christian community and they'll find themselves isolated. What's the warning to them? To hard-hearted folk who have been part of the Christian community, who have spoken words of praise, who have maybe lifted their hands in worship, but now their hearts have grown cold and they're in danger of drifting away somehow. What does he say to them? To those who won't draw near. To those who refuse to hold fast. To those who have said no thank you to a communal stirring up. What do they need to pay attention to? Here's what he says, verse 26. You guys okay? Praise the Lord. For if we, now listen, this is written to Christians, right? Written to a church. So this is to baptized believers who at some point have been, gone through catechesis to an extent where a community has said, I think they're Christians, right? I, th- I think these people are with us. If we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Wow. But what in its place? A fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Anyone else freaking out? What's he saying here? The observation is this. To reject the grace that is on offer through Jesus Christ. Jesus is this better sacrifice who comes and extends an offer of mercy to us through his life and through his death. To reject that is to invite something else. To say no thank you to Jesus is to say yes please to God's judgment. The rejection of one is an acceptance of the other and in fact an invitation of it to come towards you, right? If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, then no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Oh, how many weary Hearts are there in this place today who are beaten up through habitual sin or going like, oh my goodness, am I out? Am I out? What does it mean to go on sinning deliberately? Does this mean that a a weary, heartbroken, weak Christian stuck in sin can somehow lose their salvation Because it says here there's no remaining sacrifice for sin in that case. What do we do with such a strong warning, such a necessary warning? Is is that who it's for? Well, while, friends, this is a powerful warning that I believe is relevant to all Christians and we can apply to all believers, I don't believe that this consequence of not having any sort of sacrifice for sins available to us is a declaration. Listen, I don't believe It's a declaration of damnation for the weak sinner who is losing their fight to temptation and yet still fighting. 
If you're here today and say, I'm trying. I hate this sin. I'm fighting. And this week I lost. I don't think this one's saying, okay, well, now you've crossed the line and you can't come back. Because that was deliberate, right? That would be saying something that's counter to the rest of the testimony of Scripture. That would be saying that there is a point of sinfulness that Christ's mercy can cover up to, but that there's an invisible line at which it runs out, and none of us knows where that line is until we're the other side of it. And that all we do is skirt the line and hope that we're okay, and one day we wake up, apostate, right? Because we sinned one too many times in this area. That's not the nature of the grace that we believe in in Jesus Christ. Friends, if I said that, that would require a diminishing of the finished work of the cross on our part. That would say that Christ's redemption is acceptable for a certain quantity of sins, but that there's one over that quantity that it just cannot cover. (laughs) That's not what we think of the blood of Christ. That's not what we think of the character of Christ. What does he say? He says he doesn't break bruised reeds. He doesn't snuff out flickering wicks, right? Flickering flames. And so if you are flickering this morning, he's not coming along trying to snuff you out, but he is trying to breathe some life into you and say, don't flicker any longer. If you're a bruised reader, he's saying, well, let's put you back into joint. Let's fix you up. Let's get you healed. I don't want you to stay living that way. And so friends, listen, I think this is a warning for all of us but I think its end result will only apply to a few. And so take a deep breath. Do it. You can do it. It's okay. And now as Christians, let's pay attention to the warning together. What is this for us? If I'm coming in beaten up by sin, this is not saying that I've been kicked out of the kingdom. What is it saying? The language for go on sinning deliberately in the way that it's captured in the Greek. I don't have time to unpack it a lot, but it suggests two things. It speaks of those who are sinning knowingly and it speaks of those who are sinning ongoingly, right? Sinning knowingly and sinning ongoingly. Or what does it mean to sin knowingly? Some of you are like, I think all of my sin is knowing, right? Because it's not often that we sin just purely by accident. We're just like, oh, dang, look what happened. Um, uh, And we describe sin this way. eh? What did we say? Oh, he fell into sin. They fell into an affair. No, no, ran into it, right? Um, the, The trip and fall is usually the last step. Right? We take steps knowingly, knowing what we're walking into. So, so, so why the delineation? If most of our sin does feel deliberate, what does it mean to go on sinning deliberately? What does it mean to sin knowingly? Well, I think the answer lies in verse 28. Because I think this is a reference back to the law that really helps us with something. Look what he says in verse 28, which feels strange in the argument just as you read it. It says, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And when you get home, maybe you want to read the early parts of Deuteronomy. And what you'll see um, is that this is a reminder to the hearers that the sacrificial law that made atonement available to people through the slaughter of an animal on their behalf was only for those who sinned out of ignorance. There were some sins you could commit that you didn't know was a sin, right? The law is complex, right? Out of ignorance or of weakness. In other words, they got tempted. They didn't want to be tempted. They gave into the temptation. And after the sin, they hated it. And they're full of remorse and repentance. And they don't want to do it again. And so they come to the priest and they say, I need a sacrifice, please. I need cleansing. I need hope. I need some kind of hope at atonement. Now listen, not everyone in the community was like that though. There were some people who were outwardly part of the community, but they decided they were just going to keep on breaking commandments as if it wasn't a big deal. 
The law said they had no hope of a sacrifice. Why? Because they'd actually set aside the law of Moses. And so then they couldn't use the law of Moses to justify them. So if someone came to the priest and was like, I did it again, right? I'm Brittany, oops, um, I did it again, right? And the priest was like, why'd you do it again? He's like, because I wanted to. And the priest's like, you don't seem super remorseful. I'm not. Do you think you're going to do it again after this? Absolutely, loved it. Loved every moment of it. Don't you take this law of God seriously? Not really, but I still want to be part of this covenant group of people. And you've said that there's a sacrifice available for sins. So kill the goats. I can appease my conscience and I can go on to live the way that I want to live. You know what the law instructs for a person like that? Stone them to death in the view of the community. Now we go like, (laughs) okay, it's not happening today. Um, That's not what's going to take place after the service. But they took that so, just in case you're worried, they took that so seriously in that life that they said that someone, listen, who knows something is against the law of God, but is prepared to diminish the law of God so that they can appease their own desires, they've actually given into faithlessness. They no longer have faith that God is wise, that God is powerful, that God is right, that God is just, that God is to be feared, that his law is to be obeyed. And so they've set aside the law. There's no sacrifice for sin left available to them. And there's a way, listen, that we too can do the same thing. That we too can say, actually, by ongoing rebellion in this area, which is unrepentant and unceasing, we are saying, either we're saying God doesn't really exist, and so I don't need to worry about it, or we're saying his instructions aren't good or wise, they haven't kept up with the times, and so that's outdated, and so I don't need to worry about it, or we're saying he isn't holy and he isn't good, and so he won't do anything about it. It is a deliberate turning from what they knew to be true about God while still desiring the comfort of the community of God's people. And this is the kind of sin that the writer has in mind here, and some of you are on that path. A stubborn defiance that says, I don't care what God says. I'm gonna do this anyway. Now, how can we live that out? How how can that be true of us? I think there's a couple of ways you can get yourself into this sort of sin. Firstly, the one way would be to diminish or distort the commands of God. (laughs) This is to take something that God has said is wrong against his moral law, and he says it again and again, and to determine it to be right. (laughs) And this usually starts by saying, well, maybe it's allowed, and then it goes on to say, no, actually it's virtuous. And Romans 1 tells us we distort the things of God, and we take things that are shameful, and we make them into things that we rejoice in and celebrate in. That would be one way for you to pursue a path. I've seen this so many times. It's a deceit as old as humanity because it starts with one of the oldest questions humanity's ever faced, which is, did God really say? But did he really? Yeah, I mean, he did. But really? No, like for realsy. But did he mean it? Do you think that applies today? I mean, is he still like this? Another way, oh, friends, is to ongoingly deceive others and ourselves by refusing to come clean to habitual sin through confession and repentance. To think you can self-manage your way out of habitual sin through secrecy and reputation management. 
Friends, this seems like damage limitation in your path, but it's actually a faithlessness displayed in the grace of Jesus Christ because it never trusts his grace to operate where we need it the most, which is in the full light of our sin. Friends, when you're doing great, you don't need grace. It's when you're being your own worst self doing the things that you ought not to do, failing, the things, uh, failing to do the things that you really ought to do, that's when grace is needed. But that's the stuff we tend to hide from one another. And you do that long enough, oh my goodness, and you find yourselves on the outskirts of a community with a hard heart that starts to then ask, but did God really say? Starting to accommodate the sin that you've tolerated within yourself for so long because you didn't have enough faith and grace to bring it to the light. Reminds me of what John said in his first epistle. He said, if we say we have no sin, so when we get to moments of repentance, say, I'm good, right? We deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But look, if we confess our sins, that means you've got to speak them out. You've got to make them known. You've got to give them a name. Then what does he do? He is faithful and just to do two things, to forgive you and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But look again at the counter warning, verse 10. If we say we have not sinned, We make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So friends, where there are areas that are in need of God's grace in your life, I know you're broken and busted. If you cover those areas up and pretend that you don't have sins there, you make God out to be a liar. And you take a step towards the path of faithless rebellion because it's a step of faithlessness. Friends, when I'm trying to look to I think someone's a Christian and ultimately not my call to make, right? But when I'm trying to look in a life, it's not their failures that give away whether they're a Christian or not. It's their response to their failures. You see, repentance is required in order to be a Christian. And repentance is one of the surest ongoing signs that you are a Christian. Christians repent. And here's the bad news. You don't grow out of it. I thought I'd get older, I'd sin less. Now I just realized I was sinning unknowingly before. Now there's stuff that's sin. I'm like, I didn't know that was a sin. That's a sin too. Goodness gracious, I've got lots of back-filled repentance on that as well, right? In fact, the closer you get to Christ, the more sure you get of His grace, the more repenting you'll do. Because it's a wonderful act of worship. Friends, I've been full-time pastor in the church for 17 years, and on two occasions, only two, we've had to walk someone through the painful final step of church discipline, which is removing them from the community of the saints. And you know what you're saying at that moment? I no longer see any evidence that this person has the desire or the ability to repent. And repentance is what it takes to get into this community. (laughs) That's what it takes. We're all repenters. It's the sure sign. Secondly, what does it mean to sin ongoingly? Well, Well, this is to stop fighting it. To accommodate it in a way that you no longer hate it. You're no longer making any sort of effort to put it to death. Friends, are you soft hearted to the conviction of the Spirit? Or some of you close to hardening to an extent that you no longer care. Just being carried along by the deceit of it all. You're content to stay in the darkness of the shadows. Friends, that's a warning sign. Why? 
Because when you become a born-again believer in Jesus, the Scripture tells us He gives us a new heart, a heart of flesh. And part of the way that that softness of heart is revealed is that it hates sin. Why? Because that new heart loves God. <laughs> and because it loves God, it hates the things that, keeps us, uh, that keep us from God. And so friends, while we will continue to give in to temptation as Christians, we ought to hate it. Hate it so much that we would do anything to remove ourselves from it. For the Christian, sin should feel unnatural to us because it is. <laughs> so listen, weary saint. As long as you feel that, then I am confident that you are in the company of those covered by the grace of Jesus. But this warning is strong. What awaits those who show that there hasn't been rebirth? What for those who have a heart of stone? Look what it says. Fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume, look how it describes them, the adversaries of God. Friends, in Jesus, you have the choice between the path of grace and the path of judgment. And here the writer warns that at some point, those who choose the path of judgment get to follow it where it leads. And where it leads is to the place where we find out what it means to be an adversary of the one who so lovingly invited us to be his friend. Please lean in, friends. If you are able to turn today, that is a huge grace. Do not harden your heart. If the Spirit is provoking you now of some kind of sin, repent now. Today, if you hear His voice, let that heart of flesh operate. Don't be one who carries on sinning deliberately. All right, verse 29. To reject grace is to invite judgment. What next? What's the extent of that judgment? Verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think oh, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? One who has looked at the offer of Christ's grace and said, no, thank you. And has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. One who has maybe even drunk of the cup and then profaned it by saying, but I don't believe it's effective in my life and has outraged the spirit of grace. The spirit is a person. The person has emotions. The spirit can be outraged. What outrages the spirit? A rejection of the son. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Second observation. The greater the grace, the greater the judgment. Guys, this is why cultural Christianity is so dangerous. If you're hanging on on the outskirts of a church community and have been doing so for a long time, you're being exposed to a lot of grace. Draw near, draw near. Because the greater the grace you've been exposed to, the greater the judgment that will come. The more that you have heard of what Jesus has done for you, the more that that reality has been pressed into you, the greater your rejection of Him will be met with great judgment. If there was fearful judgment awaiting those who rejected the temporary absolution granted through the shedding of the blood of a goat or a bull, how much worse, 
How much worse will the judgment be for those who reject and diminish the blood of God's only Son? And for those who outrage the Spirit of Christ? Oh, friends, we can rightly and lovingly fear the Lord and His holiness and mercy now and then find that we won't have to fear Him on the last day. Or you can treat Him with contempt now and find out to our horror that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I'm struggling with this. When I saw it was me preaching this text, I was like, oh, Holland says, done it again with the preaching calendar, that guy. Why, why, I just want to do the draw near, you know, hold fast, stir up. That one's awesome. Let's do that one. Why does this jar us? Why does it jar me? I've had to go before the Lord and say, Lord, I don't actually want to bring this message to the people. As I read and prepped this, why did it make me so uncomfortable to consider the righteous judgment of God on those who reject his offer of grace? You know what I've come to realize? I think it's because we don't fully understand the price and the weightiness and the magnificence of that grace. And how in the gospel, listen to me, grace is not the opposite of judgment. We think we can have God's grace or God's judgment. Grace isn't the opposite of judgment. Grace is the opposite of condemnation. Judgment remains in play. It's necessary lest God himself be evil and not judge evil as what it is, which he will not do because he is holy. So we don't, listen to me, Christians, we don't get grace in the place of judgment. We get grace as a result that God's judgment has already been poured out on his son. His judgment was there and it was horrifying and terrifying, but Christ took it in our stead. When it comes to God's judgment, there really are only two options, not whether he will judge or whether he will not judge. Our only two options are, do we wanna face the judgment of God ourselves or do we wanna believe that Jesus already did it on our behalf? Those are the options before us. When we present a grace that has no judgment, then we cheapen the cross of Christ. We diminish that ultimate moment of grace by removing the very thing that made it necessary in the first place. Friends, why is the cross so brutal? The brutality of the cross reveals the severity of God's judgment against sin. He hates it. And so God's grace and God's judgment, they do collide. They're not parallel tracks, but they collide on the cross. And to those who turn down that great grace, then that great judgment remains. It remains. Listen. All of us will be judged. Everyone. Have you read Revelation 20 recently? <laughs> I read it this week. I was like, oh my goodness gracious. Verse 11, 12, let me read it to you. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. Can you imagine the majesty of God? The sky is trying to hide away and can't find anywhere to hide. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, everyone who's ever been, standing before the throne. And books were opened. And then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Our oh, friends, two big books opened. Your name called, you get to the front. Two big books opened. If your name is in the Lamb's book of life, then whatever is written in the other books will not be used to condemn you. Have you thought about judgment day? I try not to. Because imagine standing in line 
right? You get to the front, and they go, uh, Ross, Lester, uh, you know, give the date of birth, social security number, because uh, I think that's the way it works in heaven's filing system, and out comes this huge book, like this one, and this is just your sins, right? And they're like, yo, it's going to take a while, right? I'm going to need a ladder, get up there, open the book, and there every single lustful thought, selfish action, in a moment of self-righteousness and indulgence and gossip and slander and hatred and false accusation in my whole life, all recorded. But as they're about to start reading, the second book is opened and they start scrolling through the names and there it is, written in the Lamb's blood, Ross, Lester, oh no, no, he's in this book. Put that one aside. Oh my goodness, friends. What relief, what joy. I know today I sound like an old school Baptist revivalist. Uh, Like, no one's more uncomfortable with it than me, right? Like, we need a tent, I need to do multiple offerings, we've got to handle some snakes up here. Uh, Like, I know, I know, but I'm just reading the text. I'm just reading the text. It's true. Friends, there's no better time than today than to make sure that your name is in the Lamb's Book of Life. Maybe you're hanging around Christian things today, but unless you have said, I need salvation, I have sinned against the holy God who made me and I can't pay it back, but I believe that Jesus Christ paid it back on my behalf and I trust in Him, you can do that today. And once you have, He gives you a new heart and that heart hates sin. So that when you fail, because you will, you then run straight back to grace and straight back to repentance and straight back to mercy. And so one of the evidences that your name is in that book is that you won't be determined to go on sinning deliberately, right? You will hate your sin. You will want to do everything you can for this warning to not be to you. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Okay, rejecting grace is inviting judgment. The greatness of the grace on offer increases the greatness of the judgment that will be faced. Lastly, look at this remarkable turn. This is a good preacher. They know they can't leave it there, right? Look at what it said next. But recall, think back. You can almost feel the preacher feeling the weight in the room and saying, let me encourage you. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. The health, wealth, and prosperity gospel is anathema, friends. It's a nonsense. What does he say here? Remember when you became Christians? They're like, yeah. He's like, remember how I made everything worse? Yeah. I do, I do. I remember that, right? How did they respond? He's saying, think back to how your faith carried you through a season. You had compassion on those in prison, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, which is to an American mind, you're like, oh, you come try, try, take my stuff, right? See what happens. These Christians went like, well, take it. Why? Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. What's he saying to them? Look back, look how God's been faithful to you, and remember that the way that you were able to be faithful in that moment is because you looked forward to heaven and you believed it. You believed this earth wasn't your ultimate home and so you were prepared to live a different way. Therefore, because of that, because God's been so faithful to you, and because you have this amazing day coming and this inheritance, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. 
For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And now he quotes the prophets and says, for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. Amen, Habakkuk, right? And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Pressing on, keeping going, that's how we're sure that we're living in the pleasure of God. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Last observation, now I'm done. <laughs> Persevering in grace leads to great reward. <laughs> You reject grace, you invite judgment. And the more grace you've had, the greater the judgment will be. But if you persevere in grace, you keep holding on to Jesus Christ as he holds on to you, that leads to great reward. Right says, look back and look forward. Remember how God has brought you through incredible suffering and persecution. Now look forward. Think of what awaits you a future filled with reward, with a better possession, a better land, a better city, a better king, and an abiding one at that. Oh my goodness. Over the past few months, I've had the experience of walking with some friends who have found themselves in dark spots. Christians. Who have hardened their hearts and then found themselves in patterns of sin that have shocked them when they've become sober to it, right? And they've been like, how did I get here? How did I get here? At least part of the process was a failure to look back and see how good God had been to them in the past, a willing forgetfulness. And part of the process was failing to look forward and thinking that heaven has their greatest reward and thinking they could get all of those rewards in the here and now, and so they go grab hold of illegitimate things that God has said they cannot have. And in that is a hardening of heart that happens over time that stops them drawing near that stops them holding fast to the truth of the scriptures and stops them being able to stir one another up or being able to be stirred up by one another and they drift and they drift and they drift. And thankfully, in both cases, God in his grace has grabbed hold of them and said, you won't drift any further, I still got you. <laughs> Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Friends, Christianity can't promise you a comfortable life. It may well be anything but. For many of you, what lies ahead is suffering, approach, reproach, afflictions. In an increasingly post-Christian culture, it's not going to get easier. And, and, and temptation is a form of suffering that will continue in your life. Here's what I want to tell you. You can endure. Those who have properly tasted of grace will have supernatural power by the Holy Spirit to endure them, to press on towards the finish line. The grace of Jesus Christ can get you home. So don't turn from him. Today, if you hear his voice, you're not too far gone. Turn back, repent. Don't harden your heart to him. Don't remove yourself from amongst his people. Don't shrink back. Remain in his grace. What does the prophet remind us? Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and not delay. Friends, listen, it won't be long. It won't be long until we get home. It's God's kindness that leads you to repentance today, and so you won't have to seek it on that day. And so we say with the prophet, we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. But by God's grace, we are those who have faith and preserve their souls. Father God, why don't you help us today? 
to not be those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to be of those who have faith and, and who endure to the end and see their souls preserved by you. Lord, when I think of that day, when you sit in righteous judgment and the book of my life is opened, I won't be able to talk back. I won't be able to deny. I won't be able to deflect. Everything written in that book about me will be true. But then, Father, I think that I get to, <laughs> I get to some way not live the severity of that day because I can just agree with you about those sins now and rejoice that there's another book <laughs> and my name's in that one by your grace. So help me make it to the end. Lord, I pray today for those who don't actually know you. Maybe they've been around Christian things for a while never actually cried out, I'm a sinner, I need a savior, Jesus is my savior. Friends, if that's you, you can do it in your seat right now. This is not about being better, this is not about religious performance, this is about owning who you really are and accepting the offer of grace on the table through the person and work of Jesus Christ. He never sinned and he gifts that righteousness to you. Grab it with both hands. He'll give you a new heart, a heart that hates sin. You won't beat it straight away, but you'll hate it and you'll find that repentance is the way to restoration. Repentance is just agreeing with God, Lord, I shouldn't have done that. I hate it. Help me return to you, and he'll do that. Father, I pray for the exhausted Christian in this place, beat up by habitual sin, beat up by the accusation of the enemy, so tired. Would today be like a cold shower? a fresh awakening saying, oh, today I hear your voice. Let my heart be soft. May they meet you. May they find your grace to be way beyond what they ever thought possible. May they come to you in repentance and may they find your mercy there. Lord, I pray for your church. May those who are part of this community be truly yours. Those who are prepared to draw near and hold fast and stir one another up. May we, may we be people who repent freely and openly, not seeking to defend our own reputations, but seeking to run towards the mercy of the gospel. May we model that. May we see lots of that. May there be an outpouring of desire for holy living. Father, would you make us hate sin? Would we not toy with it and mess with it any longer? Father, help us, help us, help me. Lord, your scripture says it won't be long. It won't be long. We can't wait. Why don't you keep us going to the end until we see you in Jesus' name.